Corinthians 15, I will continue speaking on the resurrection today out of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's lengthy discussion of it. Uh, We're going to read verses 24 to 29 today. I think 24 to 29. No. What does it say up there? (laughs) Someone tell me what I'm preaching on today. All right, 22 to 29. All right. We're very, very close here. It's a communal effort. Starting in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then that has come in those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always for your word, Lord God. Thank you that we're saved into this hope of the resurrection. We sing today. We have hope today, Father God. We know we're forgiven today, Father God. We know our names are written in the Lamb's book of life today, Father God. Strictly because Christ has been raised from the dead. Our hearts are filled with the Holy Spirit of promise that has been poured out into our hearts, Father God. We thank you, Lord God, that we are not your enemies, that you have drawn us as close as you possibly could to yourself. We are now truly sons and daughters. Lord God, I pray that you breathe upon this tough text, Father God, that we can see and understand uh, more of the kingdom of God, more kingdom dynamics, more of this truth that drove the Apostle Paul all over the Mediterranean world, preaching this Christ crucified and resurrected for our sins. So we thank you, Father God. Bless us today in this sermon. Meet us in the text. Meet us in your word today, Father. Speak to our hearts richly. In Jesus' precious name. We'll continue today in the theme of resurrection from uh, 1 Corinthians. And that's Paul's extremely lengthy uh, discussion of it. It's the the longest chapter in the Bible. The longest uh, anything on uh, on the defense of uh, the resurrection. We have 54 verses of scripture that speak specifically about the resurrection and everything it does to the Christian's heart. We have to make sure of this. Our celebration of Easter, and we do it, we go through uh, the ritual, let's call it, we enjoy it, we do our worship songs based around the resurrection, we do our sermons based around the resurrection, but really, resurrection life is every day, you know that, right? Every day. Every day we should be sensing something about the resurrection. Sometimes it's just hope in a hopeless situation. Sometimes we're asking God for forgiveness and we know we're forgiven. That's all because of the resurrection. 
Uh, there's a love in our hearts, one for each other and one for God. That's because of the resurrection. Uh, that's our spiritual resurrection is speaking to us. And I spoke about this last week when you're praying and when you're talking about lo- to the Lord to somebody, when, when you're, you're, you're desiring forgiveness because you know you, you broke the law of love or something. You know that because you've taken part of a spiritual resurrection. That's what makes this real. We know it's real because we have been raised with Christ already. Last week we saw that our resurrection is as sure as Christ is. We can be as sure as our own physical bodily resurrection as Jesus was himself. As Jesus is called the first fruits. And the first fruit was always the guarantee of a greater coming harvest by the Lord. We never see in the Old Testament the first fruits being offered out of a grateful heart. You'll never see this in the Old Testament. The first fruits being offered... To God out of grateful hearts and God not being faithful to bring in a great harvest. Never. So we know as Christ is the first fruits, there is a common heart. We're part of it. We just worship in, in, in that spirit of the common harvest. I can taste it. I, I visualize it in my mind to the best I can. Now, one day I'm not just going to be worshiping God. I'm not just going to be worshiping God with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to be worshiping God with, with, with Abel. With Adam, with Eve, with, with Paul, with, 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 with David, with Daniel, with Ezekiel. And we're going to be there and we're going to be worshiping God together. But more greater than that, and even worshiping with Christ, we will do it in absolute purity of spirit and unity and harmony. No distractions, no inner distractions, one person to another. Every interpersonal relationship will be made whole, solid, and perfect forever. We can't comprehend that. As much as me and my wife love each other, and we do this, there's still tension because the flesh is still alive and we live in a fallen world. I love Christ. I know Christ loves you and you love Christ, but still there's a tension. We live in this already, not yet world. Our souls cry out to be closer to God. I desire perfection. No, and I can't be perfect in this world. But because we know we can't be perfect doesn't mean we don't want to be perfect. The Holy Spirit in us cries out perfection. And that is the resurrection. This is a living hope. It's a truth. It's, it, this is the very doctrine that Peter comforted his people with in First Peter when he was writing to a persecuted church under severe persecutions. And he writes this to encourage them. Listen to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy we have been born anew or born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from, a, from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. He's not specifically just speaking about heaven. It's kept in heaven, and he's specifically talking about our resurrected bodies. Our resurrected bodies aren't up there waiting to uh, be put on by us. It's an expression. That we too, no matter what kind of severe persecution we might go through, no matter what they do to the flesh, no matter what happens to this body, whether it's through persecution or torture or just uh, normal decrepitude as the body just breaks down, we know there is a resurrected body for us. And he calls this a living hope. As I shared last week, when you're 20, you might not think much about this. But every decade, you'll think a little more about it. Every ache and pain, every gray hair, every hair that falls out, 
the medication they give you will say, hmm, now I remember that teaching. It's in the Bible somewhere. We too need to comfort each other in our day. The persecution surely might not be as severe, but the fear of death is common to all men. Uh, even amongst God's people, even amongst God's mature people. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says, Since therefore the children, that's me and you, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong bondage. As Christians, we can talk seriously and openly about death, even our own death, with a sense of confidence and a sense of hope and a sense of peace. Not as the world does. The world talks about it with a nervous laughter, uh, but we do it with a settled face and uh, a settled faith and peace in our hearts. And we spoke about this last week. You know, the world tries to get around the death thing. It calls it passing on to the other side. And, you know, all these euphemisms to try to downplay it and, and take out the severity of it. You know, make it like, oh, it's not all that bad. We're just, we're going to pass on somewhere, you know. Instead of calling it what it is, it's final. It's over. Gone. And worse than that, as the writer of Hebrews says, the appointed time for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. The resurrection of Jesus is more than a body raised from the dead. And it's interesting, Pastor John spoke about this in his exhortation. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says again. Jesus, who has become a priest, not according to legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Please understand something. The raising of Christ from the dead is the foundation of a whole new universe. It is the first sign and token of a pledge and guarantee of a brand new world. And I'm going to say it and say it over and over again uh, uh, for us, this is not about, you know, we die and we float around somewhere and we say, well, what is it going to be like? The Bible gives us great penetrating insight on what it is for a believer, how to live now in the hope of the resurrection and what it's going to be when Christ comes back. And even what happens intermittently when we're waiting. That we're not floating around. We know we'll be in the presence of God forever. And we'll be worshiping with all those who have gone before us. Worshiping God. This is called the church triumphant. Today we are the church militant. We're, we're muscling it out for the Lord. We're taking it on the chin. We're sharing the gospel. We're living for Christ. And it's hard to live for Christ in this world. So we're the church militant. We're carrying on. We're picking up the cross. But when you rest and go home and sleep with the Lord, that's the church triumphant. It's over. As Paul says, I've ran the race. Now I go to heaven where laid up for me is a, a crown of righteousness. And not just for me, but for all those who loved his appearing. It's a brand new universe. A brand new existence. Paul wrote all this to combat the false teaching, as I spoke about last week, of the Greek philosophers that taught soul immortality, a soul immortality apart from the body. 
Greco-Roman teaching 2,000 years ago taught that the physical body was basically evil with all its passions and its vices. While the soul or the spirit of man was good. It was good. It wanted to do good. It wanted to experience good. It wanted to help people. It wanted to love and be compassionate. But it was housed in this body of flesh and it was being tormented. And at death, the soul was released. And that's as far as they can go because they somewhere in the universe floating around, maybe a little uh, reincarnation, you know, a little sort of something like that. And I, you know, after that, they fall apart real quick. This false notion, like all false understanding of God, had a negative, negative effect morally. And it's important to understand that. Because they thought the body was basically evil with its sins and its vices, its corruption. They figure, well, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Because the soul is good and eventually it's going to go to heaven. This false notion, like all false understanding of God, had a negative effect morally. They approach life with an attitude, let's eat and drink and be merry for, why? Tomorrow we die. This is the attitude that crept into this church. They were worshiping God, but this attitude was floating around. Which led to immorality and vice. Listen to chapter 6 of this same epistle. But Paul taught clearly that the physical body is good and even says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's our physical body. Our members of Christ. Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The physical body is, is glorious. It is the highest pinnacle of creation. In chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, he called everything good. But when he took the dust of the ground and he, he shaped it and molded it into an image of man, and then he breathed into it the breath of life, understand something. That was the highest pinnacle of all God's creation and let me tell you something he's not through with it yet we are created in the image of God we fell out of that we're corrupted and tainted with sin but now we're being recreated into the image of God in Christ in true righteousness and holiness he's restoring that which he created he's up to something and the physical body resurrection is part of it. And understand something. It's the Christian faith that has truly brought dignity and even sacredness back to humanity. No one speaks about humanity better than the Christian theologian. No one expresses it better than the Holy Scriptures. It brings man, woman, and child back into its proper relationship with God even James says, do not talk about one another. Don't praise God with your lips and then curse man who's created in his image. Don't miss the dignity of what God has created in his own image.
This leads naturally to our teaching today. And the thought behind this whole section in Corinthians. We just read something. If you were home and reading this, you would go, uh-huh. What, you, you get tongue-tied reading these verses of scriptures. We will try to bring some kind of clarity to it today. And you realize that how important this is because the resurrection of Christ, what Paul is expounding on here in this chapter, everywhere he went, the resurrection was sure to go. It fueled everything he did. He saw Jesus Christ resurrected. He saw him eyeball to eyeball, face to face. He saw him and he loved him and he fell at his feet. I know what you're saying. If I see that, I'd be a better Christian too. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You can see all you want. The only thing that changes us is to love Christ. It's not what you see. You've got to love Him. You've got to love Him. That's what changes us. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning of a restoration of the whole creation, a whole new humanity, and God wants His children to know. He does not apologize for making His children think through the faith. As though that's all too much for me. No. Your spirit born, your ears should perk up and say, praise God. He's talking about my resurrection. Praise God. He's talking about my new body. Who doesn't want to go to a doctor and hear good news? I'm giving you good news. I'm telling you. The diagnosis and the prognosis is good. It has two aspects to it. What we just read. It's both physical and spiritual. Let's deal first with the physical. I'm going to do this conceptually today. I'm not going to just break down verse by verse. I'll give you the main thought that's behind these verses. So we can follow what Paul is saying over here. So follow with me. I'm going to be speaking conceptually as opposed verse by verse. Uh, First, physical. God created the physical world and everything in it, and he called it good. Then he created Adam and Eve in his image, and he put them in the garden. He called it very good. And with the simple orders, do not eat of the tree. Did you guys do this already? Who was at class this afternoon? Look at that. I love that. That's beautiful. You see that? Don't think me, me and John aren't clever enough. Okay? We're not clever enough to do that. We're not. Our wives are. And the Holy Spirit, most certainly. Then he put them in the garden with the simple orders. Don't eat. More could be said about that. Then guess what? The unthinkable happened. Rebellion. They deserted God. They set out on a course of action of independence from God. Yeah, God's God, but I'll eat of the knowledge of tree of good and evil. And, you know, I'll determine what life is all about. I'll determine what's good. I'll determine what's evil. I'll make up the rules as I go along. And they didn't realize that this... Lapse was not temporary. It was final. 
If you eat, you shall surely die. And they didn't realize they didn't just die, but they enslaved themselves to sin, Satan, and self. How many people know that Paul speaks a lot about the flesh? The fleshly desires that wage war against our soul, Peter talks about. You know what happened instantaneous like that? As soon as they ate, their eyes were open and shame and guilt filled them. So much so that even Adam and Eve, their wonderful and personal intimate relationship was broke forever. They needed grace now. It only enslaved them. It didn't liberate them to anything. Only ruin and death. But God was not through. Humanity was created in God's image and God was not through with humanity. And what happened though, death and ruin came through a man. Now restoration and life will come through another man. As Paul speaks about, he's called what? The second, the first Adam lost paradise. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, because he's the head of a new humanity. Don't, I know you know that, right? Adam represents, he's the federal headship. He represents humanity as is, outside of Christ. All believers are represented by the second Adam. Restored back to life through spiritual resurrections. Through Jesus Christ. What Adam forfeited, Christ redeemed for us. He won it back for us. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's using the background of this Greek philosophy and their emphasis on the immaterial world. Paul showcases God's power and wisdom in creation. He shows that there's a reason for creation. There's a reason for the material world. and There's a reason for the immaterial world. The physical world was no mistake at all. We're not here by random choice. We're here by divine fiat. He spoke... And we're here. That's it. Simple. It's God's original plan and design. And humans created in God's image is his greatest work. And I don't want you to miss that. It weighs in heavily on our understanding of Christ. Everything. So great it is that he's willing to become a man himself. In order to suffer and die to redeem back to himself the creation he created in his own image. It's redemption. Redemption is the purchase of something or someone back. Christ owns us twice, do you know that? By creation and by redemption. The resurrection of Christ is the first tangible evidence of this work of God this work that was hidden in the Old Testament but it's revealed in the New Testament thus Paul brings out our dignity as created beings in God's image something that God is willing to fight for yes even wrestle us back from the spiritual dead not just fight and wrestle us back he's willing to die for us The second aspect is more spiritual. Something that could be very confusing to people. The first one was physical. God redeeming physical man. 
in the physical universe. Second's a little more spiritual, that is God being all in all. What is all this God being all? What is this? He who subjected him is not subjected, but he who is subjected is going to be back to him, so that everything's subjected to him. What are, you, what are you talking about? It's spiritual. But it has this ending. God being all in all. Ever since the fall of man, God has been restoring his kingdom. But all of this restoring the kingdom has gone unnoticed. Except for you and me. And believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It might look unnoticed, but God's doing something. God is quietly going about his business of bringing in his children. Those chosen since before the world was created. He has been doing this all without notice. From the day he saved Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah and those on the ark, then from the exodus from Egypt, then through the whole kingdom of Israel, now through the preaching of the cross. God is quietly going around the world as we know it. Christ saving souls and changing people from the inside out. Yeah, you came in here broken today. Yeah, you came in here remorseful today. Yeah, we came in here maybe hopeless today. Yeah, we came in here broken today. But we're not crushed. We're not crushed. We have hope in us. Because God is quietly doing a work within our midst and within our hearts all the time. If you train your eyes to see the grace of God, you will see God at work. You'll see God at work. Sit down and speak to somebody who just came to Christ. Sit down and speak to somebody who's going through a hard time. And you see how Christ is holding them up. That's the work of God. It's quietly going unknown to the rest of the world. But we who are trained and saved by grace, we can see God at work in a broken life, putting life back together. Can you not see that? I see that every Sunday. I see it on Monday. I see it on Thursday. We pray for it. I speak to people in the gym and I can hear and I can see what God is doing in someone's life. Don't neglect the fellowship with other believers. Otherwise you will neglect yourself of the prize of heaven or watching God working in people's lives. How people don't fellowship with other Christians is beyond my comprehension. Not to see God at work generally in someone else's life, restoring the universe back to himself. No, we want the spectacular. We want to see all great things mighty. But you can't sit there and listen to what God is doing on the inside of someone's life. While the outside is broken down and torn in pieces. But listen. Train your heart to hear the work of God. To the world, it's all foolishness. Foolishness. Bible studies, prayer groups, Sunday service, hallelujahs, amens, born again, born from above. They're all a bunch of nuts. Quite happy, too. We're happy nuts. But the day is coming when all of it will be made manifest to every soul that ever lived. Every soul that ever lived.
will see us rejoicing in heaven. Satan will see it. The demons will see it. Every unbeliever will see it. Every atheist will see it. Everyone will see us as the glory of God. It's hidden now. How many times I heard born again Christians. Let me tell you about born again. I knew a born again Christian once. And you know the stereotype born again Christian who's still a drunkard and a fornicator and a gambler and whether it makes no difference. God saves fornicators. God saves drunkards. God saves the worst of the worst. And he brings them close to themselves. And they don't change overnight sometimes. But they belong to God. And though they can't see the work of God in them. We can. Because God doesn't give up on us. It is the kingdom of God. Being transformed into our lives. Until Christ is quite. Christ is quietly going around his business, saving and transforming souls. He's subduing all God's enemies. You don't see it. It looks like Satan's in control. It looks like ISIS is in control. It looks like the Republicans are in control, or the Democrats are in control, or the conservatives are in control, or the liberals are in control, or the communists are in control. God is in control. Hear it now. Everything is subjected to him, even though we don't see it all right now. That's what the Bible teaches. And everybody's scared. Did you hear? Did you see? No, but I read. I read. I don't have to hear. I don't have to see. I read. He's in full control. And subduing every power, every principality, every ruler, whether earthly, whether heavenly, they're all going to bow down before him and call him king and call him Lord. The little Jewish fellow from Galilee. I'll say it over and over again. Jesus Christ will be the God-man forever. He probably won't stand much taller than five foot six to five foot eight. Olive complexion. The Bible says he wasn't a handsome man at all. He did not look like uh, a movie star with blue eyes, wavy hair, perfect five o'clock shadow, prod glasses. The Bible says we did not esteem him at all. We didn't even want to look upon him, Isaiah 53 says. We esteemed him as nothing. We're going to bow down. Some will do this to eternal misery, while others do it with eternal joy. But everybody will do it. What you and I know now, the whole universe will know one day. The last enemy that's going to be subdued is death. By this, Paul means our death. It will be subdued. It's already subdued. The death of death and the death of Christ. We sang about it today. I forget the chorus and the, and the line in that song. But he put death to death. But listen to this in First John. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not appear what we shall be, but when 
But we, now, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul goes on to say, if there's no resurrection of the dead, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But not for the believer, because we know he's alive, we keep ourselves pure. It has a moral, practical implication in this world. We draw hope, we draw strength, and we draw power to say no to the flesh. Because he who died, he rose again, and we're going to rise with him. So we say no to the passions of the flesh. And we keep ourselves pure. And when we fail, we go to him who loves us. Paul says, then the end will come. The end will come. The end of human history as we know it. That's a scary thought. Not for me. I rejoice. I rejoice. Christ will hand back at this time to the Father, listen, a whole new creation. He's going to hand it back to the Lord. His role as a mediator will end. Don't miss it. His standing in the gap for you and me, as John read before, always alive to do intercession for us, it will be over. He will hand back the kingdom of the redeemed to his Father. This will be a final and formal introduction when Jesus says to the Father, Father, here are the people that you gave to me before the foundations of the world. And the Father will say to the Son, have you lost any? And the Son will say, no, Father, I have not lost one. Not one father, not one soul perished out of my hand. Then Jesus will say to his bride, this is my father and yours. Welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world that the world mocked. Noah with. They mocked the kings of Israel and the prophets of Israel. They mocked the Christ. They mocked the apostles. They mocked his church. But here's the kingdom. It's prepared for you. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into my rest. And as verse 28 says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. And this speaks of the perfect harmony that was lost in the garden when God was all in all with Adam and Eve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That perfect unity, unity, that perfect harmony that was lost It will be back again. There will be one will. There won't be seven billion wills running around thinking they can eat off the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and they can determine life for themselves. There will be one beneficial will for mankind and it will be God's loving will for us to share paradise with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and with each other. That will will be the will of the triune God. God will be all in all. The Father will not need a mediator to stand before him and sinners anymore. God will stand and reside over all directly face 
to face. As a father with his children. As Paul says in chapter 13 of this text. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. But I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as God has always fully understand me. Paraphrased. I chose to speak on verse 29, if we could pull that up. It's an appendix to the sermon. Otherwise, what will people do? Excuse me. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Kind of strange, isn't it? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is an obscure verse of scripture in the New Testament. And there are at least 200 explanations for it. Most of them are fanciful, conjecture, speculations. Uh, They do nothing to edify the saint. And obscure obscure scriptures need to be dealt with uh, prudently. We just don't ad lib and say, this is what it means. We've got to be very, very careful. Uh, Otherwise, uh, staying away from any departure of clear biblical teaching. Being baptized from the dead is not an apostolic teaching. Jesus didn't teach it. The prophets didn't teach it. Paul didn't teach it. No one taught it. Crazies teach it. That's who teaches it. Best understood, this was a superstitious practice from the surrounding culture that made its way into the fringes of the Corinthian church. There were people there. You got to remember, let me give you a little dynamic on Christianity, okay? Are you ready? As a pastor, this is our little church. And in every church, you have people that worship the Lord with a pure heart. They're in. They're there. It's yes. It's amen to the pure. All things are pure. And that's one ring. But a concentric ring around it, it gets a little less with the convictions. And you go in another ring and you got people saying yes to Jesus, but they're saying yes to every weird thing out there. And that's what's going on here. They're saying yes to Jesus, but they're saying yes to every weird thing out there. And one of the weird things that were out there was be baptized for the dead. Yeah, you, someone died, get baptized for them and God will save them. Just, just crazy stuff. Or it could be somebody in the church that confessed Christ but didn't have a chance to go through the water of baptism, so someone in proxy stood on their behalf. But most of this comes out of these sort of mysterious religions of the day. It was cultic. It was superstitious. It was on the fringes. Uh, the pastor or the apostle couldn't control every thought that was going on in the church. A lot of strange teachings come in the church through the back door. This is one of them. But it's interesting, he's not condoning the practice, because he says, a few are baptized for the dead. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What do people, he doesn't say you, throughout the whole text he's talking about you, but here he says, do people, these are a different group of people within the church that are practicing this kind of stuff, this superstition. He's not condoning the practice, just using it to make a point, that's all he's doing. It's all he's doing. 
This is the safest way of interpreting the verse without spiraling out into superstitious hyperspace where there's no return. There isn't. There's no return. It only leads to more speculations without any change morally to those who practice it. It's conjecture. It has no beginning, no middle, no end. So Paul just uses it to make a point about the resurrection of the dead. I just wanted to touch upon that. I don't want you to read that and think, how does that fit into this? But anyway, let me close with some personal comments. All nations and people have some sort of end-time hope. Everybody. Buddhists have nirvana. Hindus have reincarnation. Islam has its sensual paradise. Even the American Indians would have their happy hunting grounds, etc., etc., etc. But the Christian has the resurrection. It's with its restoration of all things, starting with us from the inside out. That's why the importance, please hear me, the importance of letting God change those things we still don't want to change. Because we got to stand there one day and say, you know something, I know Christ is real. I know there's a resurrection. There are things in my life that don't haunt me anymore and only a living God could possibly remove it. The evidence of a resurrection should be all over our life. Only God can take a man that hates other men and give him love for other men. No philosophy could do that. Only a living Savior could rip and annihilate prejudice out of the heart. Only God can do that. Only God can take someone who loves sin to hate it and desire to change. Only God can change a leopard spot. Only God can do that. Only God can take a 16 or a 17 year old and send them into the mission field to save a soul. Only God can do that. Only God can take a man with millions, if not more, and give it all away just to follow his Savior. Only God can do that. Only a living God can do that. Only a living God can rip the shreds of selfishness out of our hearts that we become a self-serving, not a self-serving people, but other-serving Only God can do it. Only God can enter the recesses of our heart and change us from the inside out. No philosophy. No religion. Only a living Christ. And because of that, when we look at the night sky and ponder life, we can say with the saints of all the ages, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the resurrection is not some fanciful myth of church fathers, of would-be disciples, of cowards to manipulate men's minds in religious ways, God. The resurrection is the first fruits of the coming new humanity of which we are part of, Father God. It's a confirmation that what Christ 
did on Friday was achieved on our behalf, that he died for our sins and he rose again for our justification. God, we're looking forward to that wonderful day. We can hear it now. We can hear it, Father God. We can sing it. And we know it, Father. We want to be in that number, God. We want to be in that number when the saints come marching in, Father God. We want to be there. We want to hear our name called by you, O God. And we're going to hear it well done, good and faithful servant. We bless you, almighty God. And we thank you for the spiritual resurrections your children have enjoyed. In his name I pray.